0: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today. Um, You're in luck. This is a really, really special episode to me. Um, It's not about video marketing. It's not about building a business. It's about making waves in your actual life. Um, And I met someone that did just that. Um, Her name is Laura Carney. Now Laura is, yes, she's a writer. She's been published in major magazines, copywriter and runner. Um, But Laura's dad passed away suddenly in an accident um, by a teenage driver that was texting. Thirteen years later, Laura found her dad's bucket list. And she made the decision right then and there to complete everything that her dad hadn't scratched off of that bucket list. And to me, as someone that had daddy issues in his life, this is a story about the um, conversation, about redemption, hope, connection. Um, And I just think it's amazing. So I really, really hope you enjoy this conversation. Make sure you support our our, um, sponsors, Bridges Great Outdoors. Uh, You get 10% off your order there. Everything's in the bio. And also Jesse Itzler's 30 Days of Excellence from the BYLR program. That's amazing as well. But let's just get right into it. Um, I hope this story, this conversation impacts you as much as it did me. All right. So let's get started. Oh, oh, oh. Hey. Oh, oh, oh. Oh. So, Laura Carney, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks um, for
1: having me.
0: And I'm going to be, I'm going to be hundred percent open with you. I've been, I've been having some internal conflict, major internal conflict with you being on the podcast because... I am so excited to hear your story, but I know I need to, I I really want to know your, your, like your origins and how all this (laughs) happened. And I, and I, and I'm, I have immediate gratification issues. So I've been having this internal conflict of how to structure this interview, because I want to get to the, I want to get to what we're going to talk about, but I'm really fascinated about the beginnings too. So it's a, it's a good internal conflict. So let's start from the beginning cause I do I'm, I'm going to tease it a little bit. Um, you grew up in Delaware. Is that what, is that what yes. I understand? Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wilmington.
0: Okay. Um, how did you get to, did, did you grow up there? When did you move to Del, uh, New Jersey? Like where was your formidable child years?
1: Um, I grew up there and uh, I got a degree at uh, University of delaware in journalism and I got a job or not really a job i should say i only made like ten dollars a day I got an internship at a magazine in New York when i was uh, 25 and moved to New York then and you know since that since that time um, that was almost 20 years ago um, it, it's been a typical journalist career i've moved around quite a bit uh, as you know we were talking about before I lived in Baltimore briefly. And then I somehow ended up back in New Jersey, which I was thrilled with because it meant I could go work in New York again. So, Mm
0: -hmm. so you were a writer. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. I've read some of your resume and it sounds like really cool, fascinating work with some great companies.
1: Thanks. Um, I write when I'm fortunate enough to, Um, I haven't ever really felt like I could Fully say my my career as being a writer because you know it's 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 a little bit of an unpredictable career. Um, and at one point, I started realizing I was getting more jobs as a copy editor. Which for your listeners, what that means is the person who does all the spelling and uh, you know grammar and punctuation and you know the stuff most people don't have much fun with. But I like it. I think it's like a puzzle. Um, and that really was the area where I started getting hired full time for things. So. You know, my first job was at the Associated Press. Um, that was as an editorial assistant, which, you know, that is really not a fun job because you're just doing all the crap nobody else wants to do. You know, <laughs> but but I, I mean, I was very fortunate to have it, of course. Um, and it was also very exciting. It goes right there in New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of different stuff since then. I, w- I worked in medical journals. Um, I worked in trade magazines. And uh, I even worked at OK Magazine at a celebrity Tabloid briefly, um, which believe it or not, is a really good for a copy editor. <laughs> you get a lot of good experience copying those stories. And it was super fun. Um, and really uh, what I like to refer to as my dream dream job was when I finally got a job at Good Housekeeping um, as a copy editor on staff, uh, which was, you know, a national women's magazine in, in the Hearst building, which is super exciting because it's like a glass tower, essentially. Um, and I worked there for about seven years before I switched to freelance.
0: Wow. What was that jump like from steady gig to freelance?
1: Um, well, it happened after I found the list actually. And I should say the first year of, of doing my dad's list was sometimes a little, um, overwhelming because here I was, you know, needing to take vacation days to jump out of an airplane, um, and go meet Jimmy Carter and uh i'm also still working until like 10 or 11 o'clock at night you know many days in a row <laughs> for like yeah. a, like a week or two weeks every month so i was a little strung out um because i mean those are just magazine hours it's just just how it is um and uh by the time they ended up buying another company and they started doing their business restructuring and you know that means some people end up being uh what they call it redundancies um so people get laid off and you know had I not found my dad's list and started working on it, that probably would have been like my worst nightmare. I would have been like really upset about it. But when I got the cough from HR, all I can remember is like smiling in the elevator. You know, of course it was like this very fancy, like mirrored elevator. Um, and just being happy because I had just been given this permission to write a book about this experience I was having that, you know, had I continued working the hours I was working, there was no way I would have had the bandwidth to do it. So, yeah.
0: Were they, so here's a funny question. Were they, um, did they pick up on your elation that, you know,
1: (laughs) I don't know. I've talked about it enough times in interviews now that somebody will eventually, (laughs) I don't know, but I mean, they were like a big supporter of the project though, because, uh, they published a story I wrote about it. At the start of it, so you know, I had some big fans there, and and my editor even was helping me with like finding an agent, things like that.
0: So the reason why I ask, um, so I own a video production agency here in DC, and prior to that, um, I was, I mean, I, you know, you climb the ladder of video production, television production, and stuff like that. You start off as, you know, a grunt getting coffee, and then I ended up. Um, as a director, editor, but um, running a division for a fortune 500 uh, media company. And, um, but I had started my company 10 years before I really went off on my own. And the reason why I went off on my, and I was getting more and more work. I would take sick days. I wouldn't even take sick days. Like they would call me and I was in San Francisco working and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of whatever it is that you're talking about. But they never knew I was in San Francisco. Wow. I was having this conflict about it. And um, 10 years after I started the company, HR pulled, pulled me in and said, you know, we have, like you said, we're downsizing, we have redundancy, we're going to have to let you go. And my reaction it was in such a manner where they pulled me aside after the meeting and asked me if I needed to talk to a counselor because they thought that I was happy in some weird way about it. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was shock. <laughs> and I'm That's like, so funny. Yeah. Like, so you're going to give me a severance and I get to do what I've always wanted to do. And like, this was the springboard into like just going fine. I'm going all in on my company. And um, yeah, it was great. But I just thought that was hysterical that, you know, I, I never even talked to them. I know some people still there and they don't know that story, but
1: all right. What a so funny I'm gonna thing. Go, I'm
0: going to go all over the place. Um, tell me about your childhood
1: my childhood, I had like an idyllic childhood. Um, you know, I'm one of those people who's just really lucky because I had such a great mother and father. Um, my mom was an elementary school guidance counselor. So not only is she like a good person, but she also just read books about how (laughs) to be a good parent, you know? Um, and my dad also was a teacher and a writer. And, um, also he mainly made a living as a salesman. He had, he had a lot of different jobs, but, um, You know, they they just were naturally very good people and good parents. Um, You know, my parents got divorced when I was six. So that was the only difficult element of it. And uh, my mom remarried and my stepdad, I haven't always gotten along. Um, But otherwise, you know, I have a great brother. I have three stepbrothers you know um really good schools wilmington delaware uh great friends i would say pretty great um i was diagnosed with depression as a teenager which was very challenging um and uh you know that's always hard for the whole family when that happens and my father i think probably had depression as well although undiagnosed um and you know it wasn't it wasn't like a fun experience that i only got to see him twice a week that was really hard um but other than that yeah i would say i'm a very fortunate human being
0: well tell me about your dad
1: about my dad um he was just like a larger than life character really um you know where i seem probably a little bit more subdued and, and sobering when you first meet me, he was so he would have already cracked like 10 jokes by now, you know, like he was, he actually was like, he was a comedian and a piano bar and was a performer. (laughs) um, And that was just his night job. Um, He uh, sold advertising mostly, but he also was a liquor distributor at one point. Um, He, you know, he was kind of like an ideas person. He was. He would go from like one job to the next, but there was never really any explanation like why that was happening. It just was like, well, this is what he's excited about now. Um, and he was also a really great writer. Like he wrote a book when I was a baby and self-published it. Um, just really, really intelligent. Uh, one of those people I would say probably his most standout quality is that if you were in a room with him, even if you were like the quietest person in the room, you would have talked to him because it just made him more comfortable to make sure everybody was happy, <laughs> to make sure everybody was okay. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, just a really great dad. My brother and I really were kind of his only family because he never remarried. He had girlfriends uh, once in a while and we sometimes saw his brothers, but, but yeah, uh, he was very present, you know, in, in a way that you wouldn't expect someone who's like that to be but he just really was with us. So So I I think he was very intentional about being a father.
0: Okay. Um, Can, uh, would you describe him as like a Renaissance man?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. Perfect. You just summed up what I said in like one minute.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what can you like go into a little bit about your personal relationship with him? Like, what did you, what did you look up to him for? And, like, what was your relationship like?
1: Um, he, you know, uh, he was just my hero. I, yeah. I would say that was the case until I was a teenager. And, you know, most teenagers, when they get a little bit angsty, you start kind of questioning their heroes a little bit. <laughs> and that was around the time when I was sort of realizing like, oh, okay, like my mom's mostly going to pay for my education, not my dad. You know, well, why is that happening? And, you know, learning certain things, like he didn't always pay child support. Uh, like I, I got a little bit angry at that stage, just feeling like, uh, you know, almost like, uh, like, like afraid to be more like him when I was yeah. older, like understanding like this is the fun guy. And my mom is the practical person and it's much safer to be the practical person. So I would say at that stage in my life, I started, uh, rejecting that or, or at least being suspicious of that relationship to a certain degree, but it was strong enough that that didn't really stick, um. And well, If you don't
0: mind me asking, how did you derive that? And like, how did you get to that conclusion?
1: Oh, she or, told me because okay. I was I was I would ask him how, like what he was contributing to my college education when I was in high school. Okay, and he hadn't planned on contributing to it. He just assumed I was going to get a scholarship and maybe he'd give me a hundred dollars here and there. Yeah, um, which I guess is like I thought th- at the time thought maybe that's what his father did, but my mom has told me since that's not what happened. So you know, for whatever reason, he just hadn't planned to do that.
0: Was she bitter about that too? Or was it just a matter um, of fact?
1: I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think so because she's, she was so good at not, you know, not conveying that to us. I mean, I know a lot, a lot of, uh, divorce mothers are not good at that. And she was, but I have to guess that she was to some degree, but I mean, I, mean, I would be,
0: publicly with you, she allowed you and, and nurtured you to still keep him on that pedestal.
1: Oh, totally. In yeah. Mind. Yeah. yeah. And our entire childhood, you know, we didn't know why they got divorced. You know, it was, it, we were very protected in that way, just because she just wanted to be sure that we had a healthy experience.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, and what did you, mo- what did you most admire about your dad? Like looking back at it.
1: It's funny because some of those qualities that as a teenager, I was starting to reject are the things I admire most now. Um, just the fact that he was never afraid to try anything. Um, the fact that, you know, I was thinking about that last night because people will ask me sometimes about like, you know, am I going to publish a book about my experiences with the list and, you know, like the final outcomes of it, so to speak. And and I just think about, you know, the real lesson for me with doing my dad's bucket list is, uh, the fact that I've been brave enough to try it because that's really who he was. Um, and he wasn't afraid of being the fool, you know, so to speak. Um, and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't, but I think once you get to a certain stage in life as an adult, it becomes so much more challenging to be able to do that. And he never seemed to have an issue with it. Um, and the other quality, I think I love the most about him, which, uh, you know, is another thing I was I was certainly challenging when I was a teenager. Is that he was a big proponent of thinking for yourself. Um, as I said, he was very well read. He was very literate. Um, you know, he was a big fan of Napoleon Hill and the idea of law of attraction, and which you know people knew about even back then. And he would just you know I have found since he died I have found these like statements that he wrote to himself of these intentions for his life. You know and. Um, like, I will do this and I will do that. God help me. You know, and he also was very, he had a very strong faith, um, you know, regardless of whatever difficulties he experienced in his life, he, he really never lost his faith in God. And I think that's really important.
0: Um, so, so he passed away. He mm-hmm. died in a car accident. Um, how long ago was this?
1: Um, It was when I was 25. I, I've been trained though, to always call it a car crash because the person in question was on their phone. So like, it wasn't like accidental, like they made the choice to use the phone, but yeah, it was 25.
0: Okay. Um, And obviously complete shock, right?
1: Yeah, it was horrible. It was, I was was devastated.
0: Where was your relationship with him then?
1: It was great. Um, I had just moved to New York for the $10 a day magazine internship we were talking about. And everybody thought I was crazy. But my dad was just like, yeah, you go. You know, it's, it's like, that's what I wanted to do. This is awesome.
0: See, uh, you're painting a picture of your dad, which I, it, it makes me wish I knew him, you know? Aww. So like when everyone <laughs> thought you were crazy for going for a ten, you know, to New York city, dealing with all that, what comes with that. And then for a $10 job, he was probably so proud of you for doing that. Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But you know, what's really interesting about that though, is I, I had this last lunch with him, which was by myself. And, uh, And I say that because I actually did have a second last lunch with him where he met my husband for the first time. And he actually died five days later, which is always like freaks me out a little bit Um, because my husband and I had just met that summer. but, um, But at that lunch where it was just me and him together, he was talking about that and how excited he was for me for what I was about to experience. But what he told me was that it was always... Um, for my brother and me, and keep in mind, this is a guy who was just always like forecasting my career and my brother's career. And you know, he used to say like, "Oh, well, your visual and your audio," because my brother was a singer and I was an artist. You know, or he'd say like, "We're going to have a business someday, and my brother was going to be the accountant <laughs> and I was going to be the editor." You know, my brother did a show in high school. Oh, you're going to sing on the Ed Sullivan stage in New York! Like he was very pie in the sky kind of person.
0: He had dreams. And,
1: well, yeah, it, you know, he, he was good at noticing talent. I'll put it that way. He should have been like a talent scout or something. But so he was always talking about that. But at this one lunch, he was like, you know, it's really your kindness that makes me the most proud and, and for my brother, too. And I'm going to get emotional talking about this, but yeah. he said whenever someone came up to him and said, oh, I saw your Laura, or I saw your David, and they were so nice to me, he said that was the thing that made him the most proud. So, I mean, I know it's like strange that that's one of the last things he ever said to me, but I've always held on to that.
0: I think it's awesome. So, you know, I I have connected to your story and we haven't really even gotten into it, which I'm so excited about. Um, Because, So before I, is it fair to say that you loved your dad, obviously he was your hero, but there was an element certainly in your teenage years of complexity to that relationship?
1: Oh, absolutely. He was an extremely complex person, but I mean, I've been told I'm a little complex myself, so I'll (laughs) forgive him.
0: (laughs) So I, I have become so attached to your story because, um, not that I don't want to say you had daddy issues, but I had daddy issues and it, it, it has, it like the same kind of deal. Like my dad was a certain way and there were things about him that I absolutely spent my entire life not wanting to be like.
1: Really? Um, Can you tell me some? Yeah.
0: And you know what? I've just now gotten to the point and I haven't talked to my mom or other family members about their reaction to some. So again, this podcast is really about how people made, you know, and and it's mostly like, you know, I always set this up as, You know uh how people whether it's you know uh, business titans or you know artists or writers or you know um we've had you know grammy winners and oscar winners and new york times bestsellers and major business moguls and and you know um just everyday awesome people how they made live how, how they made waves in their lives and careers um but inevitably, we talk about real life in the podcast. And sometimes it's, you know, life isn't pretty. So, I this is the first time I'm going to say this. So, I'll probably catch shit for it. But, um,
1: we'll only say what I, you're comfortable with.
0: No, I know. But the, the, the difference between our stories were that it, 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 um, the, the shortcomings of my father were, um, provided for me by other people. Okay. So I was uh, it became very clear um from them that they voiced their opinions on his shortcomings to me, which in retrospect was just a really not cool thing to do. So he was my, you know, um, hero by far. but you know, back then, so my 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 parents, my mother was married prior. She had uh, two daughters, my stepsisters. I never this is probably the first time in my life I've ever called them my stepsisters half sisters they're my sisters um but um you know so he walked into a marriage where he had somewhere around a a three and a five-year-old already and he worked two jobs um to put all of us in private school and you know so when i would ask him hey let's go out and throw the ball around it rarely was okay let's go it was i gotta watch tv or i gotta finish this show or i'm tired or. Now that I'm older, I get it. Like, he was working two jobs. He was exhausted. He didn't necessarily have the best example of a father, parents. Um, So, I I understand now. But back then, it was just, uh, that was like, I'm I'm never going to do that. I don't want to do that. He had a little bit of a temper. um, Never got physical, um, but just reacted in a knee jerk kind of way. And that's one thing that I struggle with. And every time it's just like, damn it, dad, you know, I'm trying to, you know, so he passed away in 2012 of cancer. So I really, thank you. I really attached myself to your story because it was, you know, we didn't talk for 12 years. It was one night that my parents Um, I got home at three o'clock in the morning. I was 17 between the summer of high school, finishing high school and then college. And I came home one night late, just hanging out with friends. He pulled up right behind me. I could tell that it was just kind of a different vibe. And um, they uh, decided they were getting divorced that night. Next day, he moved out Um, and we didn't talk for 12 years after that. And I was angry and just, you know, hurt. And the things that the conversations that we had talked about, it was like dealing with an entirely different human being. Like it, 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 he, it was like, he flipped a switch and became this kind of angrier person. And I get it now what he was going through with my mom and I guess other personal things, but you know, we, we reconvened and patched up our relationship, um, 2004 at my brother, 2002, 2004, my brother's wedding. And then we had 10 great years um prior to his passing but more importantly he got to meet my both both of my kids and we had many conversations and one of them i remember we're sitting at the table my daughter was two or three and he was just involved he was present and it was really the first time i've ever seen him that way and i asked him just point blank are you kind of exercising the demons from your you know how you were a father with me with her
1: wow that this was brave
0: of, this is your way of making up you know for that time almost to me but really to yourself as well and he broke down and he's like yeah and i said well you're a great grandfather and it really you know i i feel like that you're being a great dad to me now by Just even doing that. So, you know, since his passing and we'll, we'll get into the list, but I just, I, I have longed for finding something like that, you know, and like, we still have, like, it's funny. My brother just brought over a couple months ago, my dad's laptop. He was an, um, uh, I don't know what his technicals installer. He worked for at and for 50 years. So he um, was on the disaster recovery team. So anytime there was a hurricane, he'd go down there, and rebuild the system. He rebuilt the Pentagon. He rebuilt uh, World Trade Center, that kind of stuff, wow. the fires in California. Um, so he brought over some of the gear. And I don't know what any of this is, but it's my dad's. And um, the funny thing is, I have it hidden on a shelf because I didn't want my kids to see it, but he was a smoker of Pall Malls. That's what ended up doing him in, uh, He had lung cancer, uh, red pack, no filter, Pall Malls. And my dad just had a smell. And, you know, years later, I know that the cigarettes contributed to that smell. But um, after he passed away, I would look at my daughter and she was three, five, six. You know, as, as she got older, I'm like, do you smell your granddad? And she's like, I do. And it, or I would be walking down the street and I would smell them. And she'd look at me and go, do you smell granddad? So it became this thing. And I just, I know it has a lot to do with those red pack Paul malls. So I was at a Walgreens once and I, they don't sell those anymore. And I saw a pack on the shelf and everything I have of his is golf clubs or certain mementos that smell over the years has worn off of those items. So I bought the red pack of palm malls and I just keep it in my car. And anytime I want to like get really close to him, I just grab the pack and smell them and, and, and things like that. So it's, uh, you know, so I'm I, so
1: freaked I, yeah. out right now. <laughs> so no, 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 keep, keep going. I'll tell you why I keep going.
0: Well, so th- the coolest thing about my dad was that a couple things. One, you know, I feel bad for him. This is the first time I'm telling this story publicly. So my brother has three daughters, um, but my, his wife was pregnant with, the third, and I don't somewhere in the process, I can't remember. Um, and we, you know, we had had three miscarriages prior to my daughter, and then um, we were pregnant what well, she was pregnant with my son. He fell down a couple times. We end up in the hospital, my one of my sisters, my brother, myself were there, and then that's when the doctors told us in the emergency room that he had cancer, they had found the lung cancer. And he had, I don't know, X amount of time left. And with my brother standing there who is expecting his third girl, he looks at the doctor and says, "Um, yeah, I I can't die of cancer with a straight face, just like saying the sky is blue. And he said, the doctor said, well, why is that Mr. Prather? And he goes, well, I got to stay around here long enough to meet my son, my grandson, and i looked at my brother first i was so emotionally touched by that but then i looked at my brother going he didn't even mention anything about the kid that he's got coming but um yeah and and uh we had a very complicated relationship even towards the end even though it was great we worked through a lot of stuff um but the i think the most touching thing was he fell down three times within a span of a month Towards, they gave him a year. He fought for 16 months. At 15 months, they called us all in. We're, at the, we're in the hospital because he, he fell down again. And um, they told him he had 30 days left. Told you. And uh, they kept pushing him to sign the release to not be resuscitated. And he said he would always say no and he would look at me. And there was a pattern of that. They, kept, they were like pushing him to do it. And he's like, no, I, I don't want to be resuscitated. And he kept looking back at me and this went on for like three or four times. So finally I kicked everybody out. There were three doctors in there and my brother and one of my sisters, I kicked everybody out and I sat next to him and I said, what's going on? And he's like, yeah, nothing. And I'm like, are you okay with the news? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I said, so why don't you want to be resuscitated? I said, I don't care what you do, but like, Why? I said, I have an idea. And he goes, what? And I said, well, he kept looking at me. So do you think we need some like last minute bedtime, like bedside moment? Like, is that why you're holding on? Like, that's why you don't want to be resuscitated because you think we still need to talk about stuff. And he looked at me and just started crying and goes, yeah. And I said, well, we've, we've gotten past all that, but what do you need to say? And he's like, you know, he said every, I don't got to feed it here because I'll just start bawling. But we, 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 he said everything he needed to say um and it was awesome and then he had a stroke the next week and i didn't talk to him until the last day he died um he couldn't we couldn't have that engagement but that's why i'm so emotionally connected to your story because i get it like i get wanting to like really dive into who your dad was and and um and and just that kind of yearning to really kind of understand who he is. And then also knowing that my dad had dreams and one of those dreams was to be a really kick-ass dad. And I know he didn't feel like he did that. So (laughs) that's why I put every single effort that I have to be the best dad I can be almost to honor him and to like carry that baton for him and say, I got you, you know, uh, I'll continue that your legacy, even though you don't feel like you, You know, you started it, but I'll complete it. So that's why I'm so connected to your story um, and excited to have you on. And I know that was a long way to get there, but so let's talk about this. Your dad, unfortunately passes away. Can you, so you find, um, a bucket list of your dad's when he was 29, he wrote it when he was 29,
1: he wrote it when when he was 29, right after I was born.
0: Okay. Um, and if I under, if I understand correctly, you didn't find that until 13 years after his passing. Yes. Okay. Can you walk me through that moment when you found it? Like what was going on and what box did you find it in? You know, whatever you can.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to, but first I can't let you off that easy. We have to talk about what you just said
0: because oh, no. <laughs> that
1: was beautiful. I'll make it short, but that was so beautiful. And I, I, I feel really touched that you shared that with me. Um, And, and I'm, I'm sad that, that you lost your father that way, but I'm also happy that you got to have those last moments with him and you got to have that conversation. And the reason I was telling you I was a little freaked out is because you have no idea how many times in the past week I've talked to people about smells after someone has gone. Yeah, like Like, uh, this is just how connected we all are without realizing it, you know? And like you and I didn't even totally know we were going to talk today, but, and yet here you are talking about smells. And because I was reading this book over a week ago about how, You know, a spirit can just think about a smell and send it to you essentially. So like anytime you smell that, that's your dad. It's just, that's a way that they communicate. And I just think that's incredible Um, because a cousin of mine is, is uh, trying to conceive and all of a sudden smelled my grandmother. And I'm like, yeah, that's a real thing. You know, I've smelled my grandmother a couple of times too. So I just think that's such a cool thing. It's weird, right? And it will happen out of nowhere. I don't know. You know, and it's like, they're just thinking of you.
0: The, the crazy thing for me was my daughter in that. I mean, I, I remember five years ago, she's now 12, but like, I remember being in a little beach town in Maryland, walking down the street, we just get out of the car, walking towards the beach. And I remember, I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. She looks up at me and goes, I smell granddad. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking the same thing. And yeah. And they, the two of them had such a amazing relationship for me, you know, a little third, a three-year-old granddaughter that just adored him. And he adored her and part, in part, I, you know, kind of led into why he was looking at that as a second chance, but just, he was over here all the time. Um, just wanted to spend time with us all the time. And it was great you know, it, it fixed a lot of the issues that I had with them. And, um, um, my, my son just talked about him this morning. Like I made a conscious decision to talk about him every day because one, I wanted to feel that he was still here. Cause I felt that I was robbed. I, I'm going to tell you a little, uh, um, he smoked ever since I was born, he smoked 50 years <laughs> and, um, You know how kids, like I know my kids, um, it could be July and they're writing their Christmas list and they give it to us. And then they revise it and amend it a thousand times. But I mean, that (laughs) sucker exists. Um, I never did that with my dad. The only thing I've ever asked him in my entire life, birthday, Christmas, was to stop smoking. It's the only thing I've ever asked him. And um, he never did. So the cigarette thing is just such a, just it, I hate them, you know, it's um, like something
1: and you knew, right? It
0: was, it's really weird. It you really tried to prevent I, it. <laughs> I had this fear my entire life. That was what's was going to take them away from me.
1: That's and, so crazy. Cause I went through something similar.
0: Which like was I what? remember,
1: well, well, I remember just praying as a little girl, please don't oh. let anything bad happen to my father because he didn't live with us. Yeah. And I didn't know what his schedule was. I didn't know where he was. So, you know, that could have been a car crash. It could have been any number of things.
0: Yeah. Um, his birthday was two years, two days ago. It's been a oh, crazy happy week for this conversation. But um, yeah, so it it it, and I made the decision of, I'm going to talk about him all the time with these kids because my son and what he brings up, about granddad is he feels robbed that he didn't get that same relationship that he hears about that my daughter had with him because he died when he was 10 months old. Um, And I kept telling, I keep telling him, dude, you were the one thing he kept thinking about through fighting cancer. And I said, I got to tell you, you are the reason why he lasted 16 months. They didn't give him anywhere near that amount. But it was you, because he fought every day to meet you and to see you, and you know, for me, I, that's what he thinks of his grandfather. His grandfather fought for him, so he brought it up. He brought it up this morning, um, and we talk about him as much as I possibly can, and just the fun times. And we'll go over there to his his grave and and you know, just kind of chill out. I mean, you know, a couple times a year, and just talk to him and. And, you know, it, it's, it, I, for me, it keeps him alive. It keeps his memory alive. It, it's like, he's still here. And we're just, you know, waiting for a visit kind of sometimes. And sometimes it sucks because there's things I want to ask him. And there's a lot of questions I have just about everyday stuff. Like how do I rewire that thing? And, you know, I, he would be awesome to hear that. And just yesterday we had a, a HVAC guy at the house and the guy goes well i think there's something wrong with your thermostat who installed this and i looked at him with a big smile and i said my dad installed that and he goes well there's something wrong with it i said there's he goes he must have installed it right and i said sir that's been installed for 12 years it's not it's, that that he put that in perfectly fine and we come <laughs> to find out a prong was bent because someone probably my daughter you know it's one of the kids shoved that thing back in but it's little stuff like that he'll he'll pop up in a day-to-day life and that just you know Makes you feel good. I
1: but, mean, you, you can ask him questions, you know. Yeah. You can. I mean, it, it's, it's a little harder because you're not going to hear an answer out loud. Yeah. <laughs> but you can always say to me like, hey, send me something. Send me a sign that you're okay. Send yeah. me, you know, and you'd be surprised what might pop up. It might yeah. not be just a smell. It might be something else. Yeah, I mean it's just something you can try if if you feel like. Well, it. I have. I talked to him the
0: other day on a walk. I was having an issue with <laughs> oh, my good. kids, that's great. and I was like, "Why? Why? <laughs> Why am I doing this?" You know, um, that's awesome. It was, it I'm was so really, happy you're doing that. I was angry, not angry with him, but I questioned him the other day on a walk. I just had to get out of the house. I'm like, "Why do I react the way you did?" You know, I was just internally angry about something, and I'm like, "Why can't I let it go?" Like I watched you so many years, just kind of bottle it up. I don't want to do that. And we just, we kind of had a conversation about it, but anyway, so walk me through that moment where you found that list.
1: Sure. Um, Well, and to segue from what you just said, I think a lot of people go through that. Um, I know I certainly did where you just sort of decide once you're an adult, like, I don't want to be these things. I don't want to be like my dad. Like, I don't want to make this mistake. I don't want to make that mistake. Um, And what I've come to find is that when you think that way, um, it's sort of like the "what you resist persists" kind of thing. Like you tell someone, "Don't think of a polar bear." The first thing they're going to think of is the polar bear, um, and you find yourself just living that out, just so you can, you know, have that lesson and understand them a little bit better, and maybe even forgive them. So, for me to find my dad's list, which occurred about, I would say, six months after I got married, um, and you know, going into that wedding, I, I should add, I was uh, filled with dread. Um, and, you know, my husband, and I actually dated for a really long time. I was going to um,
0: stop you right there because I was doing the math in my head. Your dad met your to-be husband five days before he died. And then yep. you found that list 13 years after he died. Yep. Yeah, long, yeah, that's a long. Well,
1: you know, we were New Yorkers <laughs> and uh, writers and creative, creative folk. And uh, it wasn't a real pressing need to to get married. Um, sure. And uh, and I honestly really did dread that moment when I walked down the aisle and my dad wasn't going to be there. Oh, that's what I mean when I say it was filled with dread. Um, and that
0: reminds me of my wife. Oh yeah. So, so her father passed. I I never met him. Her father passed away of cancer, and I knew that was something that was really kind of tugging on her. Um, yeah. In the the morning of our wedding, I gave her a necklace with a locket on it with his picture in it with her, and I said he's he's got you today. Uh, and she wore it walking down the aisle.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really hard. It was a really hard thing for me. And you know, even when my husband proposed, you know, the way he did it was so incredible because uh, I had, we had purchased this star for our Christmas tree that looked exactly like the star. my dad used to let me put on when I was a little girl and, you know, I saw it in Macy's and I insisted, like, we have to buy this. Um, and we, we, we finally moved in together after like five years of dating and I just had to have this star, this star. And I guess it was about five years later um, you know, he just, he put the ring underneath of where the star is supposed to go on the tree. And, wow. you know, normally I'm, I would be such a control freak that I would like have to be supervising tree decorating. But on that particular year, I wasn't doing that. Cause I was like putting together a gift for my brother or something and I just let him do it. And then he's like, Oh, I saved the star for you. And that was how he managed to incorporate my dad, you That's know, awesome. and, and this like beautiful light came in through the window and bounced off the star, you know, and, and, Um, so other than that though, you know, I really struggled for many years to feel like to feel my dad's presence, to feel like he was still around and, you know, we're talking about smells and, you know, I would hear a song once in a while, you know, my, I have so many songs I associate with my dad, with him being, you know, so into music and a singer, but other than songs or, you know, a smell or, uh, he died on August 8th. So for a little while there, I would see like 88 everywhere. I really didn't like. I I really focused on the fact that he was gone and that I had like been robbed of something, or I had lost him. And you know, at the same time, sorry. And
0: you're particular. I don't mean to interrupt you, but you were because this wasn't like he had cancer and you had time to say goodbye, or he had old age. He was taken away from you from a distracted driver.
1: Well, you know, you can look at you can look at it like that. I think it's it's that's a logical conclusion for a person to have, and which so it makes sense that I had that conclusion. (laughs) And on top of that, if some if it's a tragedy like that, you know what I've learned is that when someone dies tragically, besides the grief that you have to process, you also have trauma because there's the shock and it's scary. You know, if a person dies in a violent way, um, that's that's scary. You know, so you have to get through that first. And I didn't know that at the time, um, you know, having been someone who was diagnosed with depression as a teenager and gone through like seven years of therapists, I was adamantly anti-therapy after my dad died, <laughs> for better or worse, probably for worse. Um, so I really just wasn't getting the support, was it? Because I was like, I'm not going to be labeled. I'm not a victim. That was my whole thing when I was 25, of course. But, um, you know, I really did look at it like the way you just described and I think oftentimes when it is traumatic, the way a person dies, people really shy away from talking about it. Um, So I didn't feel like, and also, like I said, his only family was my brother and me, essentially. We weren't really with other people a whole lot. So my brother was all I had as far as like celebrating this person's memory, talking about them. And I mean, we were just kids. So Mm -hmm. how are we gonna do that? You know, How is this person gonna live on if like we're both traumatized by what happened? So that was really hard for me for, for a long time because it was this weird paradox and that here was this beloved man who had like this huge funeral, you know, most of the people I'd, I'd never even met before. It was very like, I don't know if you've seen that movie, big fish, but it was very like mm-hmm. that. Um, and yet I didn't know any of them, <laughs> you know, like I didn't have connections with any of them. So it was like this big incomplete thing that had happened. And uh Right before my wedding, um I was working at Good Housekeeping one day and this magazine article showed up on my desk and it was about distracted driving. And I had never even associated what happened to my dad with that. I had always thought like, you know, oh it's just a fluke what happened to him and much like so many other things in his life, you know, like someone said to me, "Oh, his family's cursed," you know, so it's like you associate meaning with what happened because it's such a meaningless thing. And I think that was one of the things I really struggled with, too, because my dad was such like he was such a meaningful person, you know, so it's it's weird to feel like someone is disposable in a way and to have to now look at life that way as a 25 year old. It really it kind of altered the way I was experiencing my 20s. Um, But when that article showed up, it occurred to me like, oh, right. The teenager was on the phone. Like she had just made a phone call because she was lost. Like she had just gotten off a highway in Pennsylvania and was, I, I have to assume, because I remember being a teenager, I have to assume she was late for something and was probably like freaking out. And like, I need to make sure I get there. Um, and, you know, just ran right through the next red light. And that was how it happened. And when I read the article and learned about this man whose daughter was killed by like a truck driver like reaching for his phone essentially while she was in a crosswalk, I just thought I have to call him. You know, I'm supposed to meet this person. And I was terrified to do call- that. Meet meet the man, meet the his name's Joel Feldman, the guy oh, who wow. lost his daughter. Yeah. Okay. And that's who the article was about. That I was, you know, for whatever reason, yeah, supposed to copy at that day. So I did, and he encouraged me to come into a high school with him and talk about how I lost my father. And it was really, really hard for me to do that because, you know, one thing I learned very quickly in my 20s is don't talk about this, (laughs) you know, like because I would be out at bars in New York trying to make friends and very quickly would alienate people because they were scared of what I was describing that had just happened. Mm -hmm. So to finally, even every place I worked throughout my 20s, you know, I was really committed to making that dream still come true because my dad believed in it, you know, and I just was like, I can't give up. Like, I didn't even have a full-time job when he died, but I was like, I have to stay in New York. Um, So I did. And I really felt like, had I not done that, I wouldn't have been sitting at Good Housekeeping reading that article that day. So I started to get involved with some of this activism. I started learning about what distracted driving is. um, And quite honestly, a lot of the time I felt like it wasn't really representing my dad very well, what I was doing, because I just kept talking about that moment when he died, you know, and because that was meant to teach people, Hey, this is what happens. Like, don't do this. And I just kind of felt like, I don't know, there was just something about it that made me feel like he was like a face on a milk box or something. And like, he was so much bigger than that to me. So by the time I had started to walk down the aisle, you know, I'd been I'd been published as a writer in multiple places, um, essentially writing about him and his death. And there was this very strange thing that happened because I had been pitching stories about other stuff for a couple of years, but for some reason, whenever it was about him, people would say yes right away. Like they might say, no, if it was, I don't know, a recap about a TV show or something that I was doing, but if it was about him, they're just like, oh yeah, we definitely want to publish that. So I I guess basically, I just started learning. Okay. So when I let myself be vulnerable and I tell this story that needs to be told that I've been hiding for 10 years, that's when I get published. Maybe like there's something to that. Um, And I also would feel, you know, I would go to these conferences with other families, you know, oftentimes they've lost children. Uh, And I would be sitting there and thinking like, I'm the only journalist in this room, you know, like they're teaching us how to tell our story. And I'm also teaching them how to tell their story. Like I had a whole month where I was helping people tell their story on my blog and editing it for them. And I thought there's some reason that I was trained in doing this. Mm. And this happened to my family, you know, like that I need to figure that out. Like, what is that? So by the time I walked down the aisle, I had already been published in a few places. I was about to be published by the Washington Post um, I really didn't feel like a victim anymore, which was important because I just felt like, well, at least I'm educating people, at least I'm finally talking about this. So I might be preventing another bride from going through that, even though I have to. And then six months after the wedding, we visit my brother in Salem, Massachusetts, where he had just gotten a new house. and and I should say I was feeling quite envious of the fact that he had just gotten a new house because, you know, that was this like, Sim- symbol of like, I'm an adult now, you know, and he was also about to get married. And uh, I felt like I wasn't quite living up to that because I knew my mom wanted that for me and I wasn't, we were still in an apartment. Um, and he found this little bag that had belonged to my dad that he'd had for 13 years. He'd never looked in it. Um, and inside was the list. And we opened it up and we just started reading it. And he's like, yeah, you know, I found this. I thought you might want to look at it. And I really think his fiance had a lot to do with that because she's she's one of those people who's very good at like kind of leaving the past behind and living in the present. And she was encouraging him to do that. But as we were reading it, it was so weird because it was like, here's these 60 items, uh, five of them he had checked off. So now we know he's had this his whole life. So he, he only
0: did, did five. I have the list uh, in front of me.
1: He only did five. One of them he marked as a failure.
0: I saw which, that. Yeah. It was which, the which uh, payback back my dad, a $1,000.
1: Right. And that explains a lot, right? Because it, it tells you, you know, if he didn't have the $1,000 plus interest to give to his dad before he died, then he wasn't just like holding out on us, right. <laughs> you know, like he just didn't have it. Yeah. Um, so that helped me to forgive that when I read that. Um, and I was thinking about it last night because people ask me a lot, you know, how did you make that decision in that moment that you need to finish this? Like, what does that feel like, you know, making a gut decision like that? And I mean, first of all, I will say that what happened was my husband, it was like, we had this weird moment of telepathy where he says out loud, this is your book. You need to finish this. And I was like, I know, like, I need to finish this. And, and I could see my dad's face, like in my mind's eye, just smiling and nodding. And that freaked me out because that had never happened before, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like very vivid. It would just, which is so how he was, he was just always smiling. Um, but I was thinking about it last night and I, I realized the, it was when I finally saw item 12 on the list, which if you're looking at it right now, maybe yep. you want to read out loud what that says.
0: It's give my children the most love, the best education and best example I can give.
1: Right. So originally on on the handwritten list, it just said, give my children the best ed- education and best example I can give. And then right above it, he wrote the most love, which makes me think like that was an addendum, right? So at some point he probably felt like, oh, I'm not doing a great job with this item. So I'm going to, at the very least, try to give them the most love, which is of course the kind of thing he would do. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking last night about how, of course, when I saw that, and of course my being sad that he didn't believe that he had accomplished that because he hadn't checked it off. Of course, that was what made me need to do this because I wanted him to know that he had done that just similar to your conversation you had with your father before mm-hmm. he died. I didn't have that opportunity to let him know that. And really that's what the list has been. It's just that I needed him to know that he had done that because only a daughter who felt that way could, could take on something of this size, you know? And then the other cool thing I realized was in a way, you know, when I started this project, I felt very conflicted about it. Cause like I said, it was this like, you know, snap, gut instinct, gotta do this. At the same time, I thought my mom's not going to like this, <laughs> you know, because my mom's the practical one and she wanted me to buy a house and and have kids and settle down and start, you know, start, quote unquote, start my life, even though I'm 38 at this point. Um, and I felt like, you know, in a way I had already started my life and this incredibly tragic thing had happened. So it doesn't really make sense that anyone would think, oh, I'm going to have this normal life now. And like, because I had to process that. And I really still hadn't. Um, and, you know, she already knew about the list. She's the only person who knew oh, about she it. Did? Well, yeah, because she, she said she found it in a drawer when I was a baby and was like, what is this? <laughs> you know, like you just became a father. You, you're going to correspond with the Pope. OK. You know, and, and she said they laughed about some of the items like have my own tennis court. You know, I mean, she was somewhat involved in it, but she said at the time I had to explain that some of these things weren't possible. And, uh,
0: she was the practical one.
1: Well, yeah, she, and there, there, there's merits to being like that, you know, But, but when, when I had just gotten married and I was, I had this idea in my head, like there's certain things you do after you get married, like you just become this responsible adult. All of a sudden I was feeling somewhat like pressured. Like I was feeling some resentment about that because I just felt like, well, am I just a wife now? Am I just a mom now? Like not that either of those things are just something, those are wonderful jobs to have in life. But I also wanted to be a writer. I also wanted to have this full expression of who I am as a person. And I felt extremely conflicted about it and was even feeling somewhat depressed about it because, you know, do I not get to have my identity anymore? Like that's really what I was going through. So when the list showed up, And I knew like, oh, okay, I don't know if my mom's going to go for this. Um, It could be like very expensive to do this. That's the first thing she's going to ask me about, (laughs) you know, because she raised me to be very good with money. Um, I was a little bit of a rebellious act. It was a little bit of me being like, okay, you know what? My whole life, I have believed that the way my dad was, was frivolous and irresponsible. And I'm going to be that now. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be just like him literally to the point of following his dreams <laughs> and that was scary as hell.
0: Was that in a was that meant to connect reconnect you to him to keep him alive to to I don't want to say justify his existence but almost justify the, the his carefree way of being and kind of validating it in some way.
1: I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask God, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that was meant to do, but what I think in my heart, it was meant to do, you know, now that I'm five years into this project, um, you know, it is similar to what I was, I was saying, I was just thinking about last night, um, you know, I had this fear when I started this like I'm going to be selfish now. People are going to think of me as selfish. You know, I, this is going to take time, it's going to take money, it's going to take energy. That's not what a newlywed woman's supposed to be doing, you, you know? Like I, and I was going to have to face the fact that the times I thought my dad was selfish, okay, now I'm going to be that. Um so I really did fear that I feared I was going to alienate people. And at the end, people were really just kind of going to not like me too much.
0: That is so interesting. Like I'm really kind of taken aback by that because, Why to is that? M- well, to me, I'm looking at it at, and maybe I'm more like your dad than I thought, but <laughs> I- <laughs> my dad and your dad seem similar. Um,
1: They're probably sharing a beer right now. somewhere. oh
0: my gosh, uh, I look at it as if this is the coolest thing in the world because now you get, you get to go on these journeys with your dad kind of, I mean, that's great.
1: Well, well, you have to think about it like this. So, so while my brother and I loved being with our father and, you know, he would take us on hikes and, you know, everything, even if we were just going to the playground, it was an adventure with my dad. Um, While we love that, at the same time, when I became a teenager and started learning, oh, he's really not contributing the way I thought he was, now I'm starting to resent all of his ideas and all of his creativity because I'm now associating being a creative person and a risk taker with someone who doesn't take care of your kids in that way. So that was my complex that I needed to deal with. And if you look at it as the fact that I'm also a daughter, I'm also a woman doing this. And it's somewhat more forgivable still today in our society for a father to be more like that, I think, than for a mother to be that way.
0: Why didn't your, did your brother have any thought to doing this?
1: Well, he loved it that I wanted to do it. Okay. but he, he just didn't really feel a need to do it himself. It. He's, he's helped me with some list items. but yeah. And I did struggle with that too at first, honestly. Um, I thought, oh, this is great because he's getting married and I'm married and this is going to be our way of keeping our dad's memory alive and still staying connected. But I've come to understand that sometimes when you go on a journey, it's just your journey to take. And, and I needed to do this by myself. Yeah. Uh, with my dad and and really wasn't his his to go on, and I think our relationship is actually a lot healthier because I've done this got it because you know sometimes what happens with divorce is the siblings rely on each other more sure, and I think it has helped me to actually just see him as a brother instead of like a brother and also sometimes substitute father figure if you know yeah. what I mean
0: no well, that makes complete sense yeah have you gotten um has this bucket list? taught you or allowed you to learn? Was it a way to learn more about your dad? Based oh, on a, like,
1: abs- absolutely.
0: Like what was really in his? I'm a big fan of dreams and, <laughs> and just having hope. I mean, that's what I think dreams are just having hope, you know, and what has his dreams taught you about him via this list?
1: Well, what I was saying earlier is how I was so afraid I was going to end up being this like selfish person or this risk taker that people didn't trust or people couldn't rely on, which, you know, so was not my personality. Excuse me. And if if anything, I had like conditioned myself to be so not that way that I was becoming like a people pleaser, really. Like I was the person who, if you asked me to do it, I would say yes, but like secretly resent it, you know, <laughs> and people don't understand like that actually does come through <laughs> when you're like that. Um And what I realized yesterday when I was thinking about this is, you know, that one list item, give my children the best education, the most love and the best example I can give. That is absolutely the most important one because it was what made me want to do this. And since doing this now for five years, I have become that way. I have become someone who, when I do something for somebody now, it's not because I'm a people pleasing or feel like I have to do it. I genuinely want to do it. Like I genuinely wanted to talk to you today. You know, um, if I'm kind to someone, it's because it's out of the goodness of my heart. And you know, I think in a way, my doing this list and writing about it and writing a book about it—that's me giving other people the most love, the best education, and best example I can give because I eventually started feeling like the way I was doing the distracted driving stuff, like that wasn't really working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my telling people not to do something. Sometimes I felt like it was making them want to do it even more, <laughs> you know, like almost like a guilty vice kind of thing. Um, and my friend who's a, who's a teacher was like, you know, the way you initiate change is by being an example, Yeah, you know, being, and I thought, okay, well, so doing this list, what I'm essentially doing is I'm showing people how to live an intentional life. You know um, I'm, I'm gearing my life around these 54 list items that I have to accomplish within this set period of time. And that's a little weird for a 40 year old to be doing, you know, like it makes me kind of um, it makes me less controlled by a lot of the things going on in our world right now. So it's like, uh, when I started doing this, I have now an agenda where I have to keep a calendar and, like, every month check off this list item, and I'm very focused on this thing. So that means I'm now worrying a little bit less about, well, do you know what's my job title at work, and you know, um, am I keeping up with the Joneses, and am I living up to these, you know, these concepts of adulthood? Like, I'm not really thinking about that anymore. Instead, I'm thinking about I'm on a mission. I have to learn how to sail. You know, I have to have to learn how to golf. You know, I'm doing these things that are purely fun.
0: Would you mind if I interjected something? Sure. I'm not telling you how to feel. Okay. All the stuff that you just mentioned you were worried about isn't the stuff that you would worry about on your deathbed. Exactly. You know,
1: which is that's what I've learned. Isn't that a gift?
0: This list here is kind of a map to a life well lived.
1: It's, a, I like to call it a roadmap yeah. of the way my dad was killed. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's a I, guide. I'm looking
0: at some of this. So, all right.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Ask me about specific items. Happy. to All talk right.
0: On. So here's here. Okay. So I want to, I want to reach out to the listeners and viewers of this because are, are you willing to accept help to get these things accomplished?
1: Are you kidding? I, I have 12 left. Okay. The only w- way w- I've been doing this is getting help.
0: Have you done number four? Which is that? Uh, have five songs recorded.
1: I'm working on it. Um, I ha- You might see behind me right now. I have a keyboard that I purchased okay. and I'm teaching myself my dad's top five songs that he used to sing. Okay. And my, my cousin has a recording studio.
0: Okay. I'm going to, I would like to take it up a notch if you don't mind. Um, oh my good God. Fr- good friend of mine. Who was who your dad's? Who, who did your dad love? What are these songs?
1: What are the songs? Um, okay. So, uh, we used to sing Edelweiss from sound of music a lot. Um, one of them is a, a Simon and Garfunkel song, Kathy's song. Okay. Um, one of them is a more sentimental one. Uh, the rainbow connection from the Muppets. Yeah. Um, oh, what else, what else, what else? Oh, he used to have this movie he loved called hear my song okay. Um, with Ned Beatty. Uh, so one of them is from that. Um, who did he love though? I mean, he loved Motown and he also loved, uh, the crooners, you know, Bing Crosby, Sinatra.
0: How about like, did he ever like, well, it doesn't matter. So (laughs) good friend of mine, um, it's been on the podcast and I do work for them is sunset sound in Hollywood, California. So this was the recording studio for Disney. This is the record. The first six Van Halen albums were recorded in these rooms. Prince recorded Purple Rain, the piano that he wrote it on sitting in there. What? Um, the, the Beach Boys. This is.
1: Oh, he loved the Beach Boys.
0: And my Pet Sounds, I believe, was recorded at <gasps> Sunset Sound. So I'm going to call Drew today and ask him um, if 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 you can go out there. And then, if he can produce these five songs in the most legendary studio in the world,
1: oh my god, that's incredible!
0: Because I, I would love to play such a small part in this list.
1: Are you kidding? <laughs> what does that even? What does that mean? Like, like, what do you mean? Like, like, turn it into a, a CD or an album or something? Well, I
0: mean, so I, again, I can't speak. I, sh- I, I, I should have called him before this, but. Um, <laughs> so but there's been times where so i'm a musician clearly yes um and there's been times where he's you know hey i'll when you come in i'll if you want to record some stuff i'll I'll produce it so i'm going to call him and see if i can get you a session there where he sits down and records these things and 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 if um And if, and if it's a go, I can only imagine the piano that you would be using is the piano that Prince wrote purple rain on.
1: My cousin's going to lose his mind. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he can come with me. He's a really great musician.
0: (laughs) And if we can work this out, I would love to film it for you.
1: Okay. um, Did you see the list item about the three good family and friends movies?
0: Let's do this. Where is it?
1: That helps that one too.
0: Where, we're, uh, it's in know.
1: that top 10, I think oh, make, make, make three good family or friends movies. <laughs> My brother, and nice I stumbled over that one a little bit. I think he means like a, fat, a home movie, like a family movie.
0: Where is that? Oh, there it is. Make three good. Yeah. So what, what, what is your take on that? What does that mean to you? I think make he meant, good? I
1: think he, he either meant home movies or like an actual film. You know, and, and, and similar to when he wrote, have five songs recorded, I assume he meant he was writing them and someone else would be recording them because he did write a couple songs. Let me
0: ask you this. And okay, so I wanted to ask you this before. How anal are you with the definition of some of these things?
1: Oh, I've, everything's up to poetic license.
0: Okay. So, what if I came up to New Jersey? You get your brother down here, down there. And we just spend a day filming you guys. And so if this is documented in your story. And we can talk about some of this stuff. And it, and rather than you know, m- movies per se, it's filmed interviews a la three little vignette documentaries about your process or just your memories of your dad. And if, if he's got a brother that's still alive or someone like that, I would be happy to come up and film these three quote unquote yeah. movies for you.
1: That's an idea. I mean, my brother doesn't really do the list. Like he doesn't really okay. do the list item. So it'd be more me, but um, I, happy- I, actually I think I like your first idea about filming the, the recording session. Well,
0: that's one. There you go.
1: And I actually, I do already have one that I consider a good family movie. Uh, when we went to London, my uh, my husband filmed my brother imitating uh, Luke Skywalker. In <laughs> one of the most recent star Wars movies. So that counts. Too. Oh my
0: gosh. All right, so I'll help you do whatever you need. To I think this is the awesomest thing in the world, and that's not even a word. You're copywriting- is, sun- is
1: Sunset Sound on Sunset Boulevard? Oh, that's a good question. There's my phone. Because that's where we always stay when we go out there.
0: Let's look it up. Just talked to him yesterday.
1: That's so, that's so generous. I can't believe you would offer that.
0: I am so into this list of yours and everything about it. Um, Where's this thing? Sunset Boulevard. Wow. Yeah. It was originally set up um, to basically be the recording studio for Disney projects.
1: That's so cool. So I cool. want to say
0: Fantasia. I could be wrong. I want to say the the soundtrack and, and audio and stuff for Fantasia. That Mickey Mouse
1: movie? Wow, yeah.
0: It's incredible. And then it turned into everything else. It went through like the crooner phase and then it, it did, um, I mean, everything. The Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah I, I can think of the Roman logo. Jones. Yeah. Um, so everything.
1: That's um, crazy.
0: Yeah, I did a podcast last, was it last night? Two nights ago with the author, Greg Renoff. He did Van Halen Rising and the, the legendary producer, Ted Templeman, his book and um he was interviewed there i was actually supposed to film go out and film that interview um got rescheduled yeah i
1: i I I should add that i noticed your your appreciation for van halen on on your instagram and uh that was one of the big things that made me want to talk to you actually uh just because
0: oh i think that's how we actually connected on instagram right
1: no, I think it was through th- your uh build your life resume or 30 oh, days. Oh, okay. That's right. That's 30 right. 30 days of excellence. But uh so so I was saying how, you know, people tend to get signs from from their lost loved ones through smells or through songs or numbers and stuff. So, uh just to bring that full circle, when I started doing the list, you know, like I said, at the moment I decided to do it, I saw my dad's face in my head. But then all of a sudden like stuff started coming through. Like really easily, like really, like there was no question whatsoever that this was him communicating with me. And I, I, the best way I can think of to explain it is that I suddenly became very open to it. And I think it's because essentially now I'm doing a project with him. You know that I know lots of people would 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 give their left foot to to be able to do a project like that with their lost loved one. So I have a, I have valid reasons to want his help, you know, to ask for advice. So one of the things that started happening very quickly was these very weird synchronicities with the movie, Back to the Future. Uh, Um, And, you know, even to the point where, you know, I went to like a meeting with people uh, who lost someone because of distracted driving. And one of the people at the meeting was actually in a car crash himself, which had, had uh, blinded him. And Mm. while we were, and he was a musician, he's, he's a great guitar player, uh, you know, before the crash. And while we were sitting there talking, he said, yeah, people call me the Asian Van Halen. (laughs) And after it was over, I'm talking to him in his kitchen because he was hosting it at his house. Uh, His name's Gabe Hurley. He's really incredible. Um, And uh, I was telling him, oh, you know, I'd love to write something about my experience doing this list because I had just gotten started doing it. And he's like, well, you know. If you put something creative out into the world, you know it might not be accepted right away. Don't worry about that. You know, I, my sister's an artist and she gets rejected a lot, and I, I tell her not to worry about it. In fact, Back to the Future was rejected forty times, and I was like, "Oh, that's like you were talking about Van Halen earlier, so that's interesting that you should bring that up." And he said, "Well, it's the first movie that I, I watched after I lost my sight. Like when I woke up in the hospital and everything was dark, I could hear Back to the Future on the TV." So it, and I enjoyed it just as much, even not looking at it. So it became his favorite movie. And that was so bizarre to me that he was talking about this because it was like one of my favorite movies with my dad. Like we watched like all three of them and Uh like over the next month or so, like back to the future was just showing up everywhere. Like you turn on the TV, it's that scene where he has Van Halen playing and he's like waking up George, you know um, I would walk into Dunkin' Donuts and Mr. Sandman starts playing. Um, I would go down to the subway station. Power of love is playing, you know, I'm in a restaurant with my brother. All of a sudden, Papa loves Mambo is playing. That's weird. Like that's a very obscure song from that movie. (laughs) You don't
0: hear that everywhere.
1: Yeah. It was to a point where it's like, okay, this can't be ignored. You know, driving along, we see a DeLorean pulling up next to us, you know, um, earlier that year, Michael J. Fox had come to my building to give an interview. I had made direct eye contact with him. Um, it was like stuff like that, that just does not happen every day. And eventually I was like, okay, I got to rewatch this film. Like what is going on here? (laughs) Like, why does this keep showing up in my life? And it occurred to me like so much of what I was doing was like that movie because here, okay. So Marty goes back in time, meets his father, finds out his father was a writer, which he never knew because his dad didn't talk about it. And essentially encourages him by saying, you can do anything you set your mind to. And I really felt like that's what my dad wanted me to know. And that's really what this was about, that I didn't have to be limited or filled with self-doubt just because I thought he had failed at certain things in his life. And instead, I could just believe in myself because of how much he believed in me. Because, I mean, one thing he got really right was being a good dad. Yeah. And I mean, that comes through in his kids. So, yeah, I, I just really felt like that was his way of letting me know, you know, I mean, that one scene in particular with the Van Halen, it's like an alien coming from another planet saying like, if you don't do this, I'm going to melt your brain or whatever. I mean, to me, that was like my dad, like my dad's spirit is coming back into my life and saying like, like knocking some sense into me really. And just saying like, stop thinking you've lost something, you know, stop thinking you're a victim. You're not like, in other words, you know, if we tell ourselves as we go through life that we've lost something that other people have, we're not really getting anywhere thinking like that. And, and right. instead, what we need to be doing is focusing on what we've been given. And my dad just gave me so much that was so priceless that you could not attach any monetary value to. And his legacy is that by doing this list, I'm able to give that same energy to other people.
0: I, you know, It's so funny you say that because I feel like I can leave this conversation and go do anything I set my mind to because I feel so inspired by you and your story and your dad and I've never met him and it's just um, it's very moving I feel like I've like I'm like this the whole in our whole conversation I'm on the verge of laughing or tearing up like it's either one or the
1: other then you're um, having you're having an interaction with Nick Carney because that's what he did to people <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, there's so many levels to why I wanted you on. Um, One of them is some of those awards back there for the stuff that I've done. um, I got a call from um, the local government. I don't know when that was a couple, you know, a handful of years ago um, to come in for, talk about a project. And I went in and uh, I said, what's, 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 what's up? And they said, well, we have this pedestrian safety, um, initiative that we are really pushing. We need to get behind because we're losing a lot of people getting hit by cars, uh, walking and distracted driving. And, um, we tried to do a video to <laughs> really geared for pedestrians to keep eye out on vehicles. Um, and that didn't work out for whatever reason, the production and the story wasn't right and it wasn't effective. Um, he, they said, but we want to do a video that's geared to remind drivers to look out for pedestrians and not drive distracted. And, and, um, we want you to do it. We heard about you. We think you're the right person for this thing. And I said, um, I said, all right, but, um, there's a couple, there's a couple things that I need to have happen before I consider taking this project on. And they said, well, what are they? I said, well, I need complete creative control. And that's rather unheard of to go to a government agency to say, I need to do this and not you. And they said, well, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, and I don't know why or where this came from, but I just looked at them matter of factly. And I said, well, I need to interview people that um, lost loved ones. So that's what this video needs to be. about. yeah, we'll show hands on stuff, but I need to interview family members that lost them, you know, loved ones. And they said, all right, we think you can do that. And they said, anything else? They said, yeah, I need to interview the people that killed them. And they said, Whoa, we can't do that. And I said, all right. So I literally stood up and walked out the door and they're like, no, 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 come back. And, um, they said, why do you want to do that? And I said, because I mean, look at who we're talking about. These videos are geared for like new drivers, 15, 16, 17 year olds. They are desensitized to quite honestly kill people you know the video games that they play they killing someone doesn't mean anything anymore you know we see it in the news all the time you know chicago there's i don't know 20 deaths a weekend no one cares like it just happens it's something that just happens um i said so i need to scare the shit out of them and i need to interview that and they said okay and they didn't ask me one time to change anything. I got zero notes, and it ended up winning a handful of international awards. And um, to me, I've been connected with that dis- dis, um, distracted driving scenario, um, or you know, situation in that way. And it's something I am aware of, and the sad thing is, we all do it on one, you know, one way or another. You know, whether we change the radio (laughs) station, of course, of course. Oh well, the radio,
1: the radio station is actually okay. But so it's it's, it's more about there's a cognitive load.
0: Yeah, but I I would argue though. um, So one of my one of my earliest memories as a child—I shouldn't say memories as a child—but one of my formative memories was that my sister lost her best friend when she was 16 cause she was playing with the radio dial and killed herself by accident, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so it's funny. It's always had that kind I'm sorry of, to hear that. Yeah. Um, parallel in, in our life. Um,
1: have- I only I only bring that up just because uh, part of my training was that they it gave us this, this chart that showed us literally you know what are the levels that are too difficult for a person to handle. So it's sort of like you really can't compare making a phone call or texting with with turning the dial on the radio because oh, it's, it's it's a it's a lesser cognitive load. Um, and that's part of how they, they try to educate. Um, but at the same time, as you just described, of course, that can happen if someone is is turning a dial on a radio.
0: Well, I mean, I look at it as now with the, the state of vehicles as they are now. Like I have a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Everything's digital on this big monitor. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to navigate that monitor to even get to the radio. And it, there, there is that cognitive load of, okay, shoot, I it's to too, suggest.
1: it's too much. It's too much. You should yeah. be in park to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, they they uh, car makers have found all sorts of loopholes to get, yeah. to get, to have their stuff in there. And it's, it's really too much for a person to be able to do.
0: Well, if we can stop that, um, I'm so hesitating to say something. And I don't Well, so here's here's the thing. All.
1: But before you do though, let's let's say one thing really quick. Yeah. You said if we can stop that, um, which is sort of if you think about the word stop, that's like a negative, a negative word, right? That's almost like you're that's holding right. your hand out saying no, no, no. Yeah. And and that was sort of what I was doing before I started doing my dad's list. Okay. And and one of the things that the list doing that has taught me has been about saying yes. It's been about is saying go to life, because I think that that actually accomplishes so much more than than being punitive about behavior. Of course, you you need to rehabilitate someone who has committed a crime or who has killed somebody. That needs to happen. At the same time, um, I think that a person tends to be more motivated and inspired by seeing a good example of what to do, which is absolutely who my father was. So my sense is that, you know, instead of being like, oh, you know, we need to be safe and we need to not do this and we need to not do that. What if I'm encouraging young people to uh, be respectful, to be aware, to be intentional, to live an adventure, to, to value their own life so much because they have important things they're doing and they're having so much freaking fun doing it that they don't want to risk that. You know what I mean? It's like, I really want to motivate this like positive reinforcement with it. Yeah.
0: No, that makes complete sense.
1: Does it? Okay. I don't know if I explained it well. (laughs) No, I mean,
0: listen, anytime you tell anyone what to do, they don't want to do it. You know, like you said, don't look at the polar bear. Like, where's the polar bear? Um, I get that. It's a, it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I mean you could look back at Nancy Reagan's say no to drugs. Did that work? Yeah, that did
1: not work so well.
0: <laughs> yeah, just because it's almost like, "Well, why do I want to say no to it?" you know? Um, I don't know. But so, is there is there anything else that you know, maybe someone listening to this, watching this, is there anything else, you know, that they could be listening to this going, "Oh, what's left?" And what can I help with? Like, is, is, gosh,
1: um, I'm working on the, the wine list item. Maybe, maybe that seller? one. Yeah. There's two wine list items. My dad was a, was a liquor distributor um, and knew a lot about wine and I don't drink. So that will be an interesting challenge with it. But uh, you know, I can always just like taste them and spit it out um but i need to teach a class about wine and i need to uh own a fine own a cellar of fine wines so those are two i'm sort of working on we
0: need to get gary vaynerchuk on that one
1: that would be awesome i would love that he's a busy guy
0: (laughs) yeah but your story supersedes busyness
1: i love him i was just watching stuff he was saying last night
0: yeah um all right well let's let's think about that let's think about how to get gary involved
1: and, I, you know, the, I have a couple other ones, still a handful of, I'm hoping to be done by December 31st. That's my goal of everything. Yeah. Of the list. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's not set in stone because I'm the one who creates these, but. So let me
0: ask you this. Are you going to be sad when it's finished?
1: I'm going to be happy. Okay. I'm going to be celebrating.
0: But is, will there be a level, and I don't mean to bring this down, but will there <laughs> w- will there be a level where you're like that, that can like the ongoing connection of literally doing things is not there anymore?
1: No, it's, it's my, I have created so much by doing this. I mean, I, one of them was plant an apple tree. I have four apple trees sitting out there right now on my patio and you know, it's kind of a race to the finish of which one's going to survive. Right. But oh I mean, that's going to be an honor of my dad when I, when I plant that in the ground and yeah, um, you know, I'm writing a book about it. Um, and uh, I've written my own bucket list and I've already started doing okay. items on it and, and I'm going to a- start a-, a charitable fund in my dad's name. So there's a legacy that just keeps going for the rest of my life.
0: Can I ask you a favor? Sure. Uh, before you entertain Selling the filming rights to this. The story rights. Will you call me? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I've been looking at this on a, on a silver screen ever since I found out about this. It would make an amazing yeah.
1: movie. Yeah. Well, we can, we can talk about that.
0: We can talk. All right. Um, how can people find you?
1: Uh, I'm my father's list everywhere. Um, okay. on Instagram. My father's list.com is where I do some behind the scenes stuff. Um, and also on Facebook
0: okay. and Twitter. And and then again, for those who li- that are listening and want to get involved with you and help you complete the list, wh- which ones do we still need to do? We have the f- the five songs. Hopefully I can help you out with that. The, the movies. Yep. The wine.
1: Yep. The book have, he wanted to have three write and publish a few novels. I believe it says okay. um, mine's a nonfiction book, but I feel like that's close enough. Um and uh the Pope. I'm working on my letter to him. Um have Vienna. Super Bowl? I did do that already, yes. Okay. Right before the pandemic. Um I have to uh go to Vienna and Dresden and Berlin and I just uh booked my hotels yesterday. Um what else is left? The charitable fun. I'm driving a Corvette. I found a Corvette. I have everything pretty much uh mapped out for the do rest you of the have year. Your own tennis court? I do. Um, right when oh, the yeah. pandemic started and we couldn't go outside, my husband bought me a ping pong table and my, my uh, number one seed I have to be in the tennis tournament is him. Cause he's really awesome at ping pong It's
0: table tennis. It is. I like it. In- indeed. I like it. I'm thinking about this big monstrosity in your backyard.
1: No, the tennis nope, court. Nope.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this is, you know what? I can't tell you how much this conversation has meant to me. I'm so glad we connected online and we were able to talk and, and um, hopefully I'll have good news for you about your recording session very soon.
1: That's so exciting. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you bet. So nice meeting you and thanks for sharing
1: your story too.
0: Oh, well, thank you for, um, for listening.